Hello, welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead on the show today, we speak with the first Louisianan to play in the NHL and his dad, former coach of the bygone Baton Rouge Kingfish. Also, a report from the Tuskegee Veterans Affairs Hospital, the first to treat black veterans, which is celebrating 100 years in existence. The hospital celebrating 100 years in existence uh, this year. But first, this summer, the energy company First Solar began construction on a new facility in Iberia Parish in South Louisiana. The $1.1 billion facility marked the beginning of what some say could help turn Louisiana into an energy powerhouse rather than just a fossil fuels-focused economy. With us today is Chad Chambers, Director of the Energy Efficiency and Sustainable Energy Center at the University of Louisiana, Lafayette. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Adam. So you're optimistic about Louisiana's potential as an energy state, other than your position as the head of a sustainable energy research outfit, which could understandably bias your viewpoint. Why are you optimistic? Well, I'm optimistic because Louisiana has wonderful resources, both in terms of its infrastructure to do energy projects, and also, perhaps more importantly, its people, its workers, who have both a real can-do attitude to get energy projects done, and also they have a skill set that is easily transferable to the clean energy industry. So tell me about the investment we've seen already. We heard the news about the first solar project in New Iberia that hit the news a couple of months ago. Tell me about that. Yeah, we're very, very excited to be partnering with First Solar on their fifth U.S. manufacturing plant. We will be providing their workforce training. We'll be training 700 workers, and First Solar will be hiring 700 workers. So the one thing I would like to say to your listeners is if you think you would like to get into clean energy manufacturing, which offers good, steady, high-paying jobs, let me know. I can hook you up. And we hear these numbers when economic stories come out. 700 workers, $1.1 billion with a B. Sounds large to me. Where is that in the scheme of things? It's certainly the largest economic development project ever in Iberia Parish. It's quite large as far as projects for the state goes. This is one of the largest. It's not the largest, but it's very significant. And one of the things that is terrific about this particular opportunity is that these are going to be permanent jobs. They're not construction jobs that then go away. Steady work is not really subject to the same up and down types of fluctuations that you have in some of our other energy industries. So it's exciting from that point of view. Yeah, certainly we hear that For instance, oil has a give and take depending on when prices are high or low, who is releasing oil into the um, the economy and, and such. You told me a little bit about the assets that Louisiana has. What does the state have to do to capitalize on its assets as far as its workers and its infrastructure to use all of that to become a player in the sustainable energy space? Honestly, Adam, we don't have to do much except be open to the opportunities that are coming at us faster than we can even respond to them. We have this culture in the state that honors, and rightly so, the tremendous contributions that the oil and gas industry has made to the state over a hundred years. We will still need that industry for many, many more decades. So we're not saying that we're going to give that up. 
we're not. This is not an either or, this is an and, and it's an opportunity to tap into another huge market segment of the energy industry worldwide. And now is the time to really jump in, I feel, jump in with both feet and capture all those opportunities and uh, strike while the iron's hot. Yeah, an and sort of thing rather than a either or when it comes to you know traditional energy versus renewable energy. When you're promoting sustainable energy in the state, whether it's manufacturing or production, it's a new thing. You know, it's relatively new to people, especially compared to the tried and stayed and familiar petrochemical industry. How do you convince people that this new thing will be good for the economy and that it's not a threat for the existing petrochemical industry, which many people still feel is, you know, sustaining the economy here. Right. Well, the first thing I would just like to emphasize is that the clean energy industry is exactly the same as the traditional energy industry. You have all the exact same requirements. You need project developers who can develop the project. You need financiers who can finance the project and and banks that can loan the money. You need landman type people who can go out and lease the land either for solar or for carbon capture projects. You need people who will do the design of these systems. You need people who can do the manufacturing. You need people who can do the operations. You need people who can do the maintenance. So it's the same upstream, midstream, downstream that we're used to. It's exactly the same. We're speaking with Terrence Chambers, Director of the Energy Efficiency and Sustainable Energy Center at ULL in Lafayette. We're talking about the potential of solar energy, manufacturing, and production here in Louisiana. How do we address those challenges to solar production in some areas where there's local pushback from landowners, from neighbors, the uh, not-in-my-backyard sort of mentality when it comes to solar production? How do we address that challenge? Head on. I think that's how we address it. We recognize that there are real legitimate interests that the neighboring landowners have. They have legitimate interests, and we need to recognize those. And we need to address those. And there are best practices that can be adopted to mitigate those concerns, such as setbacks and visual screening and so on. And the state is just about to publish a model solar ordinance for the state. The Department of Natural Resources has contracted with the Center for Planning Excellence to develop that model solar ordinance. It's just about to be released. That contains those best practices so that a, a parish council who gets a proposal, you know, a request for a conditional use permit to locate a solar farm in their parish, they've never done it before. They don't know how to respond. This model solar ordinance will give them a framework that they can adapt to their local circumstances and they don't have to start from scratch. Okay, so that's one way that we can do it. Another thing that I think is important, I think the perception is sometimes that solar farms are just going to blanket the state and it's going to completely change the agrarian nature of our state. And that just isn't true. Speaking about public policy a little bit, Louisiana's governor-elect Jeff Landry has downplayed the, the human causes of climate change, for instance, even 
going as far as to call global warming a hoax. What challenges does that sort of politics present to the clean energy industry when maybe there isn't that support from the governorship? How would your office, your organization navigate that partisanship that comes with this kind of work? Well, there is a tendency these days, unfortunately, to inject partisanship into every question. But here's the thing. You don't have to go to the issue of climate change to decide that getting into the clean energy industry is a good idea. You, you can decide that it's a good idea to get into the clean energy industry because it is a booming, growing, multi-trillion dollar business and say, I think I want to get in on some of that action. And you don't have to even answer the question of whether there's man-made global warming. You don't even have to go there. If by chance, while you're doing these green energy projects that are very profitable, if you also save the planet and we have cleaner air and cleaner water, who's going to object to that? Terrence Chambers, director of the Energy Efficiency and Sustainable Energy Center at ULL in Lafayette. Thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. Thanks. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. It's an exciting time for hockey in Louisiana. Not only did we see the return of the sport at the minor league level with the Baton Rouge Zydeco, but earlier this month, the first Bayou State native made his NHL debut. Mason Lorai plays for the Baton for the Boston Bruins, and his father, David, was the coach of the Baton Rouge Kingfish, the bygone hockey team that ran from 1996 through 2003 in the capital city. Mason and David Lorai joined our managing producer, Alana Schreiber, for more on their journeys in the sport and what it means to finally have a Louisianan on ice. David, I'll start with you. Can you tell me about your time coaching the Baton Rouge Kingfish? What was your experience like? running this team in a sport that not a ton of Southerners traditionally play. Well, I think it was great. You know, Ron Hansis, a uh, legend, yeah, he's a um, real pro guy, played played many years. Um, they were up actually in Erie, and they uh, decided to relocate to Baton Rouge. They had their, you know, they had their honeymoon. They had two or three really good years. Mm-hmm. We had some good crowds. Uh, you know, of course, we had Cam Brown. Who was you know the legendary leader and and a good player, um, so it was a great experience. And of course, two of our children were born there, and it was pretty cool. Well, Mason, you were born in Baton Rouge. Can you tell me about your early exposure to hockey and kind of how you fell in love with the sport? I think uh, I mean it definitely stems from from my dad. Um, he's obviously super passionate about about the game, and you know ever since I was born. Uh, I think as soon as he could, he got a pair of skates on me and a stick in my hand, and I was out there just slapping pucks around. I mean, that's something that we share is the passion for the game, and just you know, at an early age, you know, being being around the rink and you know, going going to watch the Kingfish and then you know, other teams that my dad coached, it was uh, pretty cool and definitely made me fall in love. Well, David, you've been around this sport for a while, so. Do you remember when Mason really started to demonstrate some serious talent? When did you realize, hey, this this kid's going places? Well, I don't know if I knew that he was going to be playing in the National Hockey League, but you know, he used to come to the locker room, not there. But when we went to Reading with the LA Kings, I remember him sitting in my meetings and he was like two. He came and he sat between two of his favorite players because the one kid gave him sticks, cut his sticks off and gave them to him. I think when he was four, um, 
you know, it sounds kind of crazy, but four and five, I, I saw, you know, we have our, what we call the eye test and he had the knee bend, his hands, you know, and then we watched it. And when he was six, seven, eight, and then, and then he had, it looked like he had some, some skill and some, some creativity to his game, which drove a lot of coaches crazy because he thought he could toe pull everybody. And <laughs> it, it, it wasn't a puck hog. He would, but he would try to make passes that just weren't there. And so I knew then that if he could start form his game around uh, smart plays, uh, and of course the rest of it kind of it, it progressed and took over. Wow. Well, Mason, can you walk us through your journey in the sport a little bit and how you went from coach's kid to major league hockey player? Yeah. I mean, like I said, just growing up, uh, always being around the game, I loved it. So I was kind of addicted to it. Uh, I'd come home from school and shoot pucks in the basement and then, you know, obviously go to practice. And eventually hockey took me and academics took me to Culver Military Academy where I went to to high school for three years. And then after that, I uh, played two years of junior hockey in the USHL for the Green Bay Gamblers in Green Bay, Wisconsin. That's where, you know, I got drafted there and then headed to Ohio State after that for, for two years. And, and now I'm here in my first year pro. Wow, another... Louisiana Ohio State connection you and Joe Burrow (laughs) we are speaking with Mason Lorai rookie hockey player for the Boston Bruins and his father hockey coach and former coach of the Baton Rouge Kingfish David Lorai Mason you just debuted in November so what was that experience like for you can you just tell us about all the emotions and adrenaline of finally getting to play at the major league level yeah, obviously, you know, it's incredible. It's a dream come true, something that, uh, you know, you, you think about that from, I mean, ever since I can remember. And finally been able to, you know, throw on throw on that jersey and, and take the ice at, at TD Garden. Um, it was, you know, really, really special for, for both me and my family. Um, something that I'll never forget, for sure. Well, David, what was that like for you, seeing your son make his NHL debut? Is this a rhetorical question? <laughs> it was it was uh it was very nice it was obviously we flew everybody in you know mom sisters a bunch of his culver brothers that go that are in the area uh, his godfather uh, who's a culver grad uh, uh flew in from minneapolis but just sitting there once once the puck was dropped it was different but it was it was pretty much just it was a hockey game and i was very proud of him and watching him of course you know you're always hoping that um that it goes well and uh he's got great teammates there and and without those that culture of the standards is 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 second to none in the national hockey league and i think those guys have really helped him adjust to the 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 early days of being there david it's such a remarkable coincidence that mason's debuting right when hockey is returning to baton rouge i mean that's crazy what was your reaction when you heard that minor league hockey is back in the state capital? Well, I, my, you're the one that told me that. And, I, <laughs> um, and when, when I asked who owned the team and he said it was Barry Sosk and we've been hockey friends for boy, oh boy, I bet it's been 30 years. And it doesn't surprise me that somehow he opened up a new franchise down there. He, he has a way he's been all over the country. Uh, he puts his money where his mouth is. He invests, uh, he hires staff. And of course, he's back at it again. Batters. I actually, it's on my bucket list. I got to get. I want to get down there. And so I, I I'm very happy because you know, for, it's not a traditional market, but 
for those who love the game of hockey and that want to be exposed to it, uh, good for Barry for uh, for setting up uh, camp there. I think it's awesome. Yeah, and I will say, having gone to one Zydeco game, there were a lot of people there wearing old Kingfish jerseys. Well, you know, Mason, this conversation reminds me of another conversation I had with a Paralympic gold medal snowboarder named Brenna Huckabee. She's also from Baton Rouge, and during the last Winter Olympics and Paralympics, she was the only Louisianan competing. And when she crossed the finish line in China after her gold medal performance, she looked at the camera and said, this one is for Louisiana. Because even though she had moved out of Louisiana a while ago, she knew that she was really representing the state in a lot of ways out there. So, Mason, when did you realize that Louisianans are watching you and, and rooting for you? And, and what does that mean to you? Um, I mean, first of all, it, it means the world uh, to, to just know that, you know, you kind of have a state behind you. Um, I think probably the first time I realized it was, was when I got drafted. And it kind of came out that uh, I was the first Louisiana-born player to be drafted. And he just, you know, I got messages here and there and uh, I just see stuff on like Twitter and social media. Uh, so that was pretty cool to see that. Um, obviously, you know, all about growing the game of hockey and, uh, you know, just in the past, you know, 10, 15 years, like hockey in the United States has, has grown like crazy and it's only going to keep going. So I think it's only right that it makes its way down south. It's, it's pretty cool to have that support. That's awesome. Well, well, David, same question. When did you realize that Louisianans all over are rooting for your son? I was getting on a plane the other day, <clears throat> going to, uh, well, just the other night, going to um, the Boston to watch their Islanders game. And I had my Boston Bruin sweatshirt on. And the guy says, oh, are you a Bruins fan? I said, yeah, I didn't say anything. And he goes, well, did you know we just had a player at our state? Uh, get drafted and play his first game. And I said, oh, really? <laughs> and then I said, I looked at him and I said, yeah, it's, it's, it's our son. And he gave me a hug in the line. Oh. And, and he said, it's all over the news. And then I had a customer phone me from uh, Southern Louisiana the other day. And I thought he needed something. He goes, no, I don't need anything today. Do you know that your son is all over the news? This and that? I'm like, Matt, really? And uh, who knows, right? Maybe we're going to have an NHL team in New Orleans soon. That'd be pretty incredible. Mason Lorai plays hockey for the Boston Bruins, and his father, David, is a longtime hockey coach who formerly coached the Baton Rouge Kingfish. Thank you both so much for being here, and Mason, best of luck with the rest of your season. All right, you have a great day. Thank you. This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Last Saturday was Veterans Day, and one way to honor former service members is to learn a bit more about veteran history in our region. For many black soldiers returning from World War I, health care was hard to come by. That changed in 1923 when the VA established a hospital in Tuskegee, Alabama to treat black veterans from around the country. And 100 years later, it's still in operation. NPR's W. Elliott paid a visit to learn more. The sprawling, leafy Tuskegee VA spans more than 400 acres. It operates like a mini city. There are outpatient medical clinics, a nursing home, a psychiatric hospital, and a mental health residential treatment program. It also has its own fire station, baseball stadium, and chapel. 
In the early 1920s, the nearby Tuskegee Institute, a historically black university, gave the federal government land to build what was first dedicated a century ago as the Tuskegee Old Soldiers Home. I kind of think of this as um, where, where health equity for veterans began. That's Amir Faruqi, director of the Central Alabama Veterans Healthcare System, riding around its Tuskegee campus on a golf cart. Faruqi says work is underway to designate the Tuskegee VA a national historic landmark. You know, it really is a piece of history because there was no other VA built like this. It was built specifically for veterans of color, black American veterans and others who were not receiving the same quality of care or access to care following World War I that they really should have been and that they deserved. And especially this was challenging in you know the South due to Jim Crow laws and segregation. The federal government pledged to build the Tuskegee VA after protests by black World War I veterans. There was also pressure from a larger national campaign supported by the black medical community, the NAACP, and black newspapers, says George Washington University professor Vanessa Northington Gamble, a scholar of African-American medical history. Black soldiers were demanding care. The black medical profession was pushing for this because they needed some professional affirmation. That, that they could run a hospital, and also that they could provide care. It opened in 1923 with 600 beds and 250 patients. But there was controversy from the start. On July 3rd, 1923, the Klan marched on Tuskegee because of this hospital. They did not want a Black-controlled hospital in the middle of Alabama. Gamble says it was all about who was going to be in charge of the federal funding that came with the establishment of a Veterans Affairs facility. Initially, local officials prevailed, and there was an all-white administration. But national pressure remained, and the federal government agreed to gradually hire black doctors and nurses. A year later, the Tuskegee VA was the first to be run by an all-black medical team. This is a time where Black people fought for their health care. And they stood up to the Klan. They stood up to the federal government. Gamble says that's an important takeaway, because when many Americans hear Tuskegee, they think about a different health care story. When the federal government experimented on Black men in Tuskegee, leaving them untreated for syphilis. She says the VA story is not one of oppression, but one where African-Americans prevailed in fighting medical racism. It came at a high cost to those early leaders who faced death threats, but Gamble says eventually the Tuskegee VA became a hub for black specialists to develop their careers. It's long since integrated and now serves all manner of veterans. The campus has also provided economic opportunity for African Americans in the rural South. My name is Philip Lyman, and I'm a native Tuskegeean. Lyman has been a pharmacist here for 37 years. My father worked here for 42 years as the chief pharmacist, and my mom used to work at the canteen for 20-something years. He says for as long as he can remember, the VA was central to the Tuskegee community. It's where he came to play Little League baseball and do Boy Scout activities. Lyman takes pride in the history. There was no other place. This was the place. This was Mother Tuskegee. 
<laughs> it's it's something. I mean, and you and you get to thinking about it, and you're just like, how did you know it survive? And yeah, I mean, for a hundred years, it's been here. VA officials say the tenacity and legacy of the Tuskegee VA can serve as a lesson for eliminating health inequities today. That was NPR's W. Elliott reporting from Tuskegee, Alabama. Our managing producer is Lana Schreiber. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.